This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 2nd, 2024. Happy Groundhog's Day. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Stuart Prost. Thanks for filling in this week, Stuart. Uh, Scott's still away. Uh, hopefully, everything he needs to have sorted will be sorted in the next week. But uh, for now, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I had a look to see if I could see my shadow on the way in. So far, no, but I will have to check again because it's looking like we may actually see sun today for the first time in a very long time. On today's show, the people who aren't seeing sun are BC United. Uh, BC Conservatives probably are. They're having some good days. The Greens are making choices. And there's some cabinet shakeups and trouble for David E.B. these past couple weeks. So we'll get into all of that. First, patreon.com slash politicos to help keep this show going. Let's start this week by talking about like polls and finance numbers, which feels like the perennial conversation of why BC United is doing so bad and why the Conservatives are so hot right now, uh, even though the NDP seems undefeatable uh, from these. So we have a new poll from Research Co. putting the NDP at 46, Conservatives at 25, United at 17, and Greens at 11. Uh, I think I saw a Polara poll that was similar. The NDP was a little bit stronger, uh, just over 50%, but we like Mario here on the show. Uh, and we also had fourth quarter financial reports come out from Elections BC. This is the last three months of the year fundraising. And Kevin Falcon was talking up how BC United had its best quarter ever. They raised $1.2 million, which was a little bit shy of the $1.9 million the NDP raised. Uh, the big story there, though, is the Conservatives raising 300000 which was more than they had raised in the previous three quarters. And more than they raised in all of 2022. So they have started to spin up their machine, although it's not as big as the BC Greens who have 500,000 from that last quarter. What do we take from this? Well, we can see that the sands uh, under the feet of the uh, the leaders on the right are, are continuing to to shift. In particular, I don't we don't really see much changing between uh, the, the Greens and the NDP, if we like to think of that that traditional left right split. But it's it's pretty clear that. Uh, the BC United is in a fight for its life now that we can say that they're the, the real thing to watch as, as we're sitting here today is uh, who is going to emerge as the, the voice of the right uh, of the political spectrum in BC in the, uh, in, once the dust settles on the 2024 election. And, uh, and the momentum is with the, the BC Conservatives, even with a fundraising machine that is, well, doing better than before is, is still a, 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 a fraction of what BC United is able to do to bring in. Kevin Falcon has had success in in increasing fundraising for for uh, BC United, so credit where it is due. But even so, the conservative message is, is resonating. Folks who are looking to not vote for the BC NDP and are looking for a right of center option are swinging to to the conservatives. They uh, they seem to be at home with that identity. With the the BC Liberals no longer an option, the BC United has not been able to simply bring that entire voting block along with them, at least not so far. Well, and I think we saw, yeah, we even saw in 2020 that 
and 2017 that the BC Liberal brand and messaging had grown tired. They didn't seem to have anything clear to offer British Columbians, and the NDP was able to eat up a lot of that. And we've talked a lot about that, right? I mean, one of the things the BC United struggles with is like, what is that point? And, you know, Kevin Falcon is talking about they have a new media blitz to try to showcase their party. And I think this is their third effort to try to introduce the new brand, which is not a good sign for your branding attempt. Uh, that you need to keep trying new advertising campaigns to get people to know what you are. But it's one of those things. And, you know, we could talk about it in terms of there was a story, the federal government trying to re or considering rebranding the carbon tax again, or even we won't get into it. But there was a report this week from the public health officer about safe supply saying, maybe we need to drop the term safe supply and just do prescribed alternatives. And it's like, with each of these things, you're arguing about branding when you you need to be talking about ideas. You need to actually try and connect with people. It's not the name on the tin. It's that you're just not resonating, regardless of what it's called. Right. If you're if you're rebranding, you're losing. What seemed to be a uh, <clears throat> a catchphrase we could adopt here. Uh, the uh, the uh, idea that the the BC United is simply the the BC Liberals with uh, a new coat of paint is. Uh, not something that people seem to be willing to buy. There's, a, I think, a, a questions that we were asking at the time that the, the name change was announced. I don't know if anyone would have predicted it would go this badly, but but there there were paradoxes built in there that that were not fully explained. So if you are if you are changing your name because you are changing your approach to voters, well, how are you changing? What's the new reason you exist that is different from the old reason you existed? If it's not a change, if it's just the same old thing, then then why the why the new name, why the rebranding? What is the point of it? Is it just seems like it's uh, uh, an exercise in, in public relations. And uh, on top of uh, of those issues, there's the 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 actual direction of the name change. If you are a center-right party and you're having trouble appealing to centrist voters who vote, say, federally for the, the liberals, showing, going out of your way to say, we are no longer liberal is not going to necessarily help you with that that pool of voters. So so the best case scenario for that BC United uh, uh, gambit would seem to be to to really pull together the, the center-right voters. But but they've done anything but. Uh, in that, that Conseco poll, we saw uh, something like uh, 40% of BC Liberal voters are are uh, willing to just go along with BC United and accept that it's the same thing. So so this this is a, a rebranding exercise that has so far failed miserably, and it has put, the, the again, the, the, the party in mortal jeopardy. Does it exist to bring together federal liberals and federal conservatives in the, in the provincial scene? Well, if so, on what basis are they doing that? They are not uh, speaking to liberal concerns. They are not speaking to uh, conservative cultural concerns either. So, so why this party exists is an answer, as a question that, that uh, Kevin Falcon has about nine months to answer. Well, and I think the fundraising numbers betray an even deeper issue they have. Like when you break down into their reports and look at how many donations that each party is getting, BC United has less than half as many donors as the BC NDP had in the last quarter. The NDP had over 10,000 donors and almost 11,000. And BC United had about 5,000. Uh, they're getting more money from each person, which is great for their machine. But they are an electoral machine, so they do need individual support. And like the BC Conservatives have the 
lowest average donation, like they're getting just $130 from the average person versus like 150 to 220 from the other parties. And so they do have a growing pool, but they still have a lot of work to do to actually become a political force rather than like a grievance that shows up on polling, because that can fall apart real quick when the writ drops and it turns out they don't have candidates in half the ridings and where they do, they don't have the machinery to get volunteers door to door. Like we have seen political parties win without trying like Quebec NDP 2011 federally. They did really well in that election, despite having, you know, famously one candidate in Las Vegas. But you don't want to bank your political movement on that kind of luck. Right. And at the federal election uh, uh, coming up in uh, likely 2025, we see Pierre Polyev uh, riding high in the polls. It's pretty clear that a, a good chunk of that support is people who are just desperately tired of, of the Trudeau government and are, are ready for something new. And, and so, I mean, they, they, that is one path to victory, but it's not not an active one. You're counting on on your your opponent to to make the mistakes for you. And uh, and this this NDP government, with whatever else you want to say about them, they don't make too many mistakes, and they are pretty pretty quick to clean up the mistakes that they made most uh, most vividly in the uh, the, the BC uh, Museum. Uh, turnabout that they were willing to just say we were wrong and we're going in the total wrong direction and and we're going to to do something different so so with uh th that is it's not a party that seems so far inclined to, to defeat itself completely and so uh adding to the conservatives problems in that long term is the fact that they they may have a message that resonates with right of center voters but that's not the same thing as resonating with british columbians more generally and so i think one of the reasons why the, the ndp is doing so well poll after poll is that they have captured that that center of the road mainstream uh, sensibility that most british columbians care about a changing climate and action on climate. Most British Columbians care about issues of, of reconciliation. Most care about issues of inclusivity and trying to to uh, open our arms to to uh, all members of society, whether we're talking about issues of, of uh, gender fluidity or whether we're talking issues about uh, 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 different backgrounds uh, in in society. This is this is a welcoming party, and and the BC Conservatives are sending off messages that they are are, are skeptics on some of those issues, and, and tapping into that that cult, cultural angst that we see so often on on the right. And so they may win the right with that, but that's not the same thing as winning an election outright. And so again and again, we see things setting up pretty well for the NDP, at least into the medium term. Yeah, and the other parties that we haven't talked too much about are. The Greens. So, in I had to pull up their 2022 uh, fourth quarter fundraising out of curiosity. In that last quarter, they actually only raised 260,000, and so they did raise almost double what they raised the previous year, which is great news for them. But their polling is still struggling. Like they're behind where they were in 2020. They're at 11. percent They've been kind of floating in the low teens. Uh, they're not hitting that. 2017 high water mark. And now we have this fascinating and perplexing announcement that Sonia Furstenau is leaving her Comox Valley uh, constituency to run in Victoria Beacon Hill uh, against uh, new NDP Education Minister Grace Lore uh, in what has historically been the third strongest NDP riding in the province. Like in 2001, when the NDP was down to two ridings, this is the riding they lost by 20 votes. In almost all of the other elections, they've gotten about 50 
or more percent of the vote. Uh, Carol James got it with 53% in 2017. Grace Lore took it with 55%. Um, there is like 30 or 40, 35 or 40 percent of the riding that doesn't vote, and maybe she can bring some of those out, and maybe the star candidacy will bring the Greens from the 30 percent they've been at up a bit. But that's a huge gap to try to close for any leader. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a head scratcher. It is, uh, um, I guess, uh, we could describe it as a bold decision, um, but it is. Uh, for all the reasons that you just laid out, it is not one that is likely to end in in uh, the party leader winning their seat, and and uh, a party that can't return the leader to uh, to the legislature is going to be a, a party that has difficulty uh, maintaining its relevance, and 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 the Greens are already struggling with that the, when. When all parties, uh, or most parties, are taking environmental issues somewhat uh, seriously, and and the the BC NDP tries to very hard to show that they are doing enough on environmental issues uh, to try to neutralize that 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 conversation. Uh, uh, the Greens have to work even harder to do to maintain their their relevance in the political conversation, and and this sort of move, unless it pans out, and and I, there, there's no reason at this moment to think that it that it will. The thirty point gap is is almost impossible to to make up when when the the uh, governing party, the the incumbent party, is is uh, riding high, and, and Grace Laurie is not an unknown within within BC NDP circles, a, a member of, of cabinet now with a, a recent promotion, just as as you mentioned, and. Uh, and, and moreover, a, a, a member of BCNDP that champions a lot of the same issues that uh, Ms. Furstenau does, and they are both uh, able to speak to issues of, 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 of representation of women in, in politics, some of these issues that uh, may not be uh, against a different candidate, uh, Sonia Fershnow might have been able to heighten contradictions, but against Grace Lore, that even that advantage, that potential advantage, isn't there. So we may have a a fruitful dialogue between the two. They had a really um, uh, uh, warm uh, welcome welcome to the race uh, exchanged with each other on on the website formerly known as as Twitter, uh, uh, and, and so that's nice to see it. So it elevates the the tone of our, our politics, and, and I am, I'm always here for that, but I don't know that it's going to end well for, for the Greens. Maybe she's just done with politics. I mean, and, and I should correct the two mistakes I made in my last uh, bit. She first and I was formerly of the Cowichan Valley, where her home is, but it sounds like she has a place in Beacon Hill, and hence that might be the reason she's going there. She hadn't really explained it as far as I know. Uh, and the other mistake is that Grace Lore is the new uh, Children and Family Services Minister, not Education. Roshna Singh is the Education Minister. I'm tired. We're all tired with kids, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. The Greens have, I was looking at their 2020 results and I didn't get the exact percentages up, but like they didn't have a single good constituency. Like uh, both Firstenau and Adam Olson faced very tight races where they got around 30 to a third of the vote, like 30%. Uh, to win it. Uh, Oak Bay Gordon Head was just below that. West Vancouver, the two ridings, they were in the high 20s. And then like a number of other ridings were all in the like 20s and then they dropped down from there. And so they don't, even where they've like built up their base where, you know, Adam Weaver had his, Andrew Weaver had his breakthrough in Oak Bay Gordon Head 
and Adam Olson had is Saanich North and the Islands, they've not managed to shore up those ridings as much, or at least, like you've said, the NDP has managed to bring those voters home or bring those voters over to them and just eaten into that lunch. So the Greens face kind of an existential crisis, even as their fundraising is actually working out for them. Like they are managing to have the functional aspect of a party without the popular interest. And so maybe they can turn that around in the next six, seven months. Uh, but the clock is ticking pretty hard for them. Yep. I think all that's right. I think the Greens may, in in an election or two, once again, find relevance that that sense of, of uh, governing parties having uh, a natural life cycle. Every government acquires baggage over time. And, and as people tire of the, the VC NDP, we can foresee a time when, when voters on the center and the left of, who are concerned about environmental issues in particular start to park their votes there, looking for a way to express their, their displeasure with the government. But that is not this environment today. And so, uh, so I think it, we're, it may be tough times ahead for the Greens, at least in, in the near term. And the other two things I wanted to say that are bad news for the BC United is uh, Ellis Ross, their relatively popular MLA and former leadership candidate from uh, Skeena, or the, at least the northern BC area, he has announced he's going to run against uh, not Nathan Cullen. Nathan Cullen's old riding. I think it's Tyler something. Uh up there in northern BC, he's going to run against the NDP. And for the federal conservatives, which is an interesting choice. I mean, it's not a surprising one. Ellis was always generally seen as on the right wing of the BC liberals. And so he'll fit well in at the BC conservatives and it's a nice or at the federal conservatives. And it's a good sign for them to pick up a prominent indigenous voice and former uh, leader from the community. But it's a loss for BC United, for sure. Yeah, and this is beyond the uh, the polling numbers and beyond the fundraising numbers. Looking at where uh, the uh, folks with with political ambitions, where they are starting to sign up, that is the the the, the other kind of uh, indicator we can look for for the health of the party. If if we start seeing folks like uh, Ellis Ross leaving BC United for either the BC Conservatives or for municipal levels or or Worst of all, to run for BC Conservatives. If we start to see that happen in, in greater numbers, that that's when I think within then it's a full blown not just worry but <laughs> existential panic for for the party. If if no one's left to 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 carry the banner, then uh, how long can that that banner stay in the air? It becomes a real conversation. But uh, I think it is also an indication that. Uh, uh, Ross is paying attention to which way the wind is blowing and, and sees that uh, uh, joining the, the federal conservatives right now might be a, a smart career move. So uh, wishing him all the best with, with that uh, transition. And the NDP managed to steal a kind of signature policy that Kevin Falcon had announced a couple of weeks ago. Falcon announced that a BC United government would ban cell phones in schools. And this was like a core plank of his education policy, which it's one of those things that I think a lot of parents are like, okay, I can get behind that. That's a reasonable thing. It's, and a lot of teachers as well are very frustrated by the situation in schools. How you operationalize it, it's always going to be a bit complicated because teachers don't want to be liable for lost $1,000 pieces of equipment from students and face the lawsuits. But it's it's a manageable solution. Um, but it's also like not a particularly ideological issue. And so the NDP had no problem picking that policy up and putting it with two that they previously announced about uh, taking action on 
harmful images on social media and announcing their new concrete action to keep kids health and safe, healthy and safety in schools, which includes restricting the use of cell phones in schools. And they'll be requiring all school boards to bring in new policies on that by September, which is just kind of takes the very little wind that I think had put in the BC United. I don't think anyone was really talking about them so excitedly, like, oh, I'm going to vote for them now because of this. But they had an idea and it got stolen immediately. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it is. And that is the kind of thing that can happen when a party, again, has not found a really strong, if you like, a, a meta-narrative, like a story, uh, uh, just a narrative narrative. It doesn't have to be meta. Uh, about why why they exist. What is that What is that difference that they can heighten again and again comparing themselves to, to the governing party? To be a party in favor of restriction of cell phone use, just as you say, that that can be evidence based policy making that any any party that is is uh, paying attention could find a way to talk themselves into there there are issues of uh, of, of screen time as a, a uh, parent of uh, ten and eleven year olds can confirm those are those are real issues and 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 communications at school also real issues so so it's it's something that uh, people uh, with with uh, younger kids or not so young kids are going to be keenly aware of. As, as an educator, I also see it. Uh, the cell phone use in the classrooms and the university setting can be all kinds of frustrating uh, for any students of mine who are listening, just a reminder. Uh, so this is a, uh, an issue that, that they can just incorporate into the, the governing philosophy fairly easily. And with, without that stronger uh, story behind why are, are the, the BC United taking out position after position it's going to be easy to cherry pick the things that uh, these boutique kind of ideas that they they choose to champion, and, and so this is uh, uh, this this is a, a symptomatic of that larger uh, issue that we were just talking about. Well, jumping over to the cabinet and its rocky start to the year, the David Eby decided to shake things up. They called it like a mini shuffle, but I don't even think you can call it that when you just trade two people jobs. But as we mentioned, Mitzi Dean has left or been pushed out of the Ministry of Child and Family Development. Children the, has been pushed out of the Ministry of Children and Family Development and replaced by Grace Lohr. Uh, and Dean now goes to uh, whatever parliamentary secretary position Lohr had and vice versa. The Ministry of Children has faced a rocky few years uh, from changes to individualized autism funding that were widely panned by many different groups because they tried to centralize and require everyone go through, I believe, these uh, community resource hubs rather than just get bulk chunks of money uh, to the continual challenge of overseeing kids in care where too many die. And we've seen a couple in the past year or few years uh, in very tragic cases. And so there had been calls from the Greens and Indigenous groups to turf her, to get Mitzi Teen out of this office and bring someone new in. And so Grace Lohr now has the uh, thankless job and probably the hardest portfolio in the province. Um, and it seems like a well, um, it seems like most people are pleased to see this change, although uh, I kind of feel bad for Grace Lohr having to take over this. Uh, I hope she can do better. I think she's the third now in this office and it's going to be a tough, tough time and a lot of work to do to rebuild trust. I think it is uh, a, a, an important 
file and and sometimes the most important files are the 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 most thankless but uh, it is uh, an indicator uh, again of that uh, the BC NDP the willingness to to change direction when when things are not going well, but it is also an indication that this is not a not a government that is uh, above uh, what we say beyond beyond attack beyond uh, criticism that there are things that the the BC NDP is, is not handling well. We can talk about uh, issues of uh, uh, of safe supply of drugs uh, as well. There are the, the ongoing poison drugs crisis uh, in in BC. The, the inability to to put the resources in place necessary to deal with that 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 issue, but but when dealing with uh, uh, family services, when dealing with uh, child adoption, when dealing with the issues of uh, a pattern of a recurring pattern of of abuse of, of, of children in in foster care, that that is an issue that requires a vigorous government intervention and action. And so uh, it's a, there's also a sense that it doesn't matter if it's a hard job or not, it's a job that has to be done. And so so uh, this is an opportunity for, for Ms. Lohr to, to also to, to find an opportunity to, to really show her medal, for, uh, if, if you like, to, to show that she is equal to the challenge of, uh, of a, a significant and challenging portfolio. And uh, by way of, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, not not a conflict of interest, but I should say that uh, I know Grace from her time at at UBC in in, in uh, doctoral studies as well. So I, I again I wish her uh, all the best in in in, in this new. Yeah, we're getting for... to that awkward time in life where people we went to school with or knew from volunteering when we were younger suddenly have like real and very important jobs. And not to say you know neither of us have real and important jobs. We're just not in cabinet of governments. Uh, the Ministry of Children and Family Development has been doing some important work. Like, not, I don't think Dean's tenure should be viewed as like an abject failure. It, like, it is a really tough ministry because of the systemic issues that it's been faced with. But under her watch, we have seen the government really move and um, pilot and bring forward some new agreements with First Nations in this province. And they have transferred uh, control over. Uh, children in care to a few individual nations that they're trying to work towards reconciliation. And that's a bumpy road, unfortunately. And it's, you're, you know, you're right that it's so important when children are involved that this be done with care and attention. Um, but, you know, there is reasons for optimism, I think, on this file that some really important work towards reconciliation is being done there. Um, and it just needs that, you know, it needs to be approached a with someone who is above reproach or, you know, you need to do it perfectly kind of situation. Good is not good enough, but good luck. And we'll continue to follow that one. The other minister who's under fire is Selena Robinson, the minister of post-secondary education, former finance minister who'd seen a demotion when EB first became premier and shook up his cabinet from what John Horgan had set uh, she is being called on by the Canadian Association of University Teachers and the Federation of Postsecondary Educators of BC, the two unions representing most postsecondary uh, educators, uh, to lose her job. They are calling on EB to fire Selena Robinson or demand her resignation over allegations that she intervened in a Langara review of an individual teacher who uh, said really bad things uh, at a protest a few months ago. She 
this is Dr. Natalie Knight allegedly, or at least in videos said that uh, she kind of praised the Hamas attacks and rightly drew a lot of criticism for that. Uh, Langara completed its own internal process and determined they didn't quite rise to hate speech, though they were deeply offensive. And it kind of followed that. But throughout the process, Robinson had tweeted condemnation of the individual professor, said she was speaking to Langara's administration, and at one forum said she was talking to university profess uh, admins about these kind of things. And the unions are using this as allegations that she is uh, improperly uh, involving herself and pressuring university administrations to censure you know, pro-Palestinian voices, something that has been accused more widely across Canada. And the evidence they've provided isn't the strongest based on a tweet and vague comments at a rally, but people went through and watched that entire uh, event that she spoke at. And she said some much worse things at that uh, about Palestine being a crappy piece of land in her words before uh, Israel was founded which she has since apologized for, saying she just meant they didn't have many resources, which I don't think is going to appease everyone. Not a good week for her. Uh, no, it's not. And it, uh, uh, it was, it's, a difficult, uh, it's a difficult issue to try to, to, to say um, uh, too much about. I think uh, I am, this is another one of those cases where I am uh, not entirely uh, uh, separate from the story of having taught at Langara recently and, and uh, continuing to teach at another post-secondary institution uh, at, at UBC. Uh, um, I think it's, it's for, um, I feel like the way I want to talk about this is to talk about how important it is to to try to create environments uh, as uh, as an educator where we can have difficult discussions, but do so in an, in a way in which everyone can can find their place and everyone can feel included in in the discussions. And and I think that is the the uh, and that everyone can can feel safe to take part of of those conversations. And and uh, and they're they're never going to be easy and they're never going to be be comfortable because uh, views are are. So so divided on, on this subject, but it's important to to create those spaces. And so it's also uh, so that that's one set of issues. And it's also important to have have the sense that uh, universities and, and 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 faculty are, are free to 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 make those choices for themselves under the the the. Uh, um, the principle of academic freedom that that they have the the, the ability to uh, to uh, manage their 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 classrooms with the free of uh, political interference and so th there's there's a bunch of thorny issues there and uh, I think it uh, I will say it is good that Ms Robinson apologized for for those comments I don't think they were um, whatever whatever the reasons were behind her saying them I don't think they were uh, in any way uh, helpful or in creating that that sense of uh, yeah I think one of the I was just talking about. And not just in an educational sense, but in the whatever, yeah. One of the things whatever form we discussed before uh, coming to the show, and before you, I'm sure, have spoken to other media, is like one of the issues here is one of perception, right? And like, I don't think it's a broader political issue. What this one teacher said in a rally uh, that is definitely something for the college to deal with or Langara to deal with, but on the ministers side 
you know, tweeting things out like I'm having calls with the president of the university is suggesting you're trying to pressure. And I could believe that the unions have more knowledge of this issue than they can prove publicly because they would be privy to some back channel information, but they could also just be basing it on this. So I don't know uh, what level of influence she has really exerted. And But I do know this kind of thing happens where calls get made that imply a certain, well, you shouldn't say that, or and they come from government to universities to nonprofits. And it's kind of the dark backroom side of power in this country that people don't really like to acknowledge. And, or they just say, it's just how things are done. And we don't talk about it enough. And it's, it's non-transparent. And I think most, I would hope most people could take some issue with it based on the principles we try to talk about in terms of perception and transparency. And that's where I think she hasn't done her utmost in being above reproach on that. And that's where at least one of her failings is. There's, you know, other failings in here, the offensive comments being among the top of them. But being above reproach as a minister, like a couple months ago, we had a conversation or Scott and I had a conversation about the attorney general's comments around decisions being made by individual justices. And was that and that was something the law societies had criticized the BC attorney general for as, you know, bringing into question the justice system and should the, was the attorney general's comments too far? And they were debatable, right? Because there is a certain point where the attorney general is political office and should argue about how the law should be enacted and reviewed, but they also shouldn't really like say that a justice is corrupt and which wasn't the case. So there's a line and there's a fuzzy middle in there. And in this case, I think Robinson needs to work harder to facilitate that kind of trust in the ministry that seems to be lacking from at least the teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we can say uh, it's it's important that citizens and including ministers can can make their views known on on issues but but it's uh it's, it's also i think f f more than fair to say universities colleges are are thinking a lot about this issue already about how to how we can conduct ourselves in in ways that are, are going to to give space for people to express their their uh, earnestly held views but also do so in a way that allows conversations to continue and allows everyone to feel safe uh, from from uh, persecution and so th these are these are important uh, deep issues and then to have a, a minister uh, wading in I don't think it just on that issue of perception I don't think it creates a, a helpful perception the universities and colleges got this they are really on top of this issue and, and so I think um, uh, it let 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 the letting those processes on on campus work that work their way through is a is a um uh, i think the, the the a good idea in in general we, that it, getting to the point where anytime uh, an academic says something we don't quite agree with we're we're going to call for their call for their 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 job i think that that that's um 
also something that we do want to to be aware of. We can see that happening in in the United States as part of a broader kind of cultural uh, uh, cultural conflict there. And and it, I don't think that's a comfortable place for society to end up either. And I'm not saying Canada is there, but I'm saying that those are those are also things we want to be aware of. We want to 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 create space for for academics to speak, and we also want to make sure that academics are speaking in a way that. Uh, ensures their own students feel feel safe feel included in conversations so complex issues and and so i think everyone being thoughtful uh, will will help and and i don't know if i have a more um exact prescription than that at this particular moment yeah i'm definitely glad we're not having public hearings with university presidents like the us i think it was congress or senate was doing uh and even i think one of the federal cabinet ministers, one of the liberal cabinet ministers actually sent like a letter to every university president saying like, what are your policies on anti-Semitism? And it's like, that's not your job. Or like, and I think it was a little bit more like push-pull weighted kind of a biased question. It's like, let's let's take a step back and be thoughtful, I guess, as you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. But in the spirit of transparency. And, okay, go ahead. I was just saying, and, and sometimes universities will look at an issue and, and there, it won't make uh, an administration won't make the, the, the right decision in other people's views and so uh, the, even there there's there's room for a discussion but but trying to give uh, a benefit of a doubt and and, and create, creating space for for academic conversations to unfold and for the processes to unfold uh, within universities I think is a is a, 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 a good general approach for, for government but at the same time you, you know, we maintaining freedom to, to speak one's mind on the issues and and if you if you're concerned about anti-semitism by all means it's important to talk about that if you're concerned about islamophobia it is it is important to talk about that but again doing so in this and uh, doing so in a, in a thoughtful and considered way well on uh freedom and privacy and transparency let's jump to the supreme court of canada that just this morning issued its decision in a case dating back to 2018 in Ontario on whether the CBC had the right under the Privacy Act of that province, the Freedom of Information Protection and Privacy Act, to access Doug Ford's 2018 cabinet mandate letters. Uh, the privacy commissioner at the time actually found that, yes, CBC should be able to access them. Ontario kept appealing it. I believe they... the media and the privacy commissioner won at the Ontario Supreme Court and the Ontario Court of Appeal, although that was split. And then they appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, who unanimously uh, decided with the province of Ontario that, in fact, cabinet mandate letters are a part of the discussion process uh, of cabinet and therefore protected by parliamentary privilege and are exempt from the law. There was uh, Justice Cote dis concurred with a like different uh, issue on standard of review. I haven't read that, and I don't think it's substantive to the main question here, which is a very interesting one of like, we didn't used to get mandate letters, then they became kind of the norm, and now it's not necessarily going to continue if people don't want it to. Right. 
But I, I, I see it fascinating to watch the arc of this. If we go back to 2015, it was with much fanfare that the Trudeau government announced that they were going to publish mandate level letters so at the federal level. And so that, that was not the norm prior to 2015. And it very quickly, it became some, a more widespread practice and, and one that in hindsight, it seems to make sense, right? You you uh, you are uh, appointing as the prime minister uh, members of cabinet. Uh, there, you're giving them particular instructions. This is what you're going to do for for the the, the, the people of your uh, of your community, and and uh, so. Well, uh, making that all that public, there, there's certainly a justification for it, and uh, and so we have now, for in in the space of less than ten years, gone from here's a new thing that we could do to enhance transparency to here's a thing that we quite often do to here's a thing that potentially you you actually have to do as government, and and now we we've seen the court take a step back from from that obligation, but but there's still a a, a political expectation, and and the choice not to publish those letters is. Is a choice. We would say we are we are elected to do something, but we're not going to tell you exactly what we're going to. We're, we're, I'm not going to tell you what I'm asking my ministers to do. That that is a choice, and that can still have political uh, political implications. But I think the the court here is drawing a line and, and trying to respect that uh, that idea of uh, of uh, cabinet uh, um, solidarity and and uh, and the, the the privacy that comes with uh, cabinet advice. Well, and I think the thing to really remember with the release of these when the, especially when it's voluntary is when Trudeau releases it when David E.B. releases these mandate letters they are at that point political messaging documents right if they are being publicly released they are being prepared for public release just like and it's kind of the weird implication of <clears throat> the weird implication of free of information processes is they don't necessarily just make all the documents available to the public. Rather, they change how the documents exist because the people who work in government are actively thinking about, well, someone might ask for this email or this you know, briefing note, and therefore, I'm either going to change how I write it or just pick up the phone, tell you over the phone, and then send a half note by email in case that gets out. And so the nature of government has reacted to its attempts to be more transparent, not let alone the challenges that uh, freedom of information has faced entirely. Uh, the Globe and Mail and a number of other journalists are doing a lot of work these days exposing just how broken and half-hearted the systems often are. I saw an Instagram post from one of these accounts today uh, from a Globe and Mail journalist who was telling the story of how he tried to get FOI requests from Corrections Canada and then through a subsequent FOI request, he found out that because he'd emailed or contacted each of the different divisions across the country, they were coordinating with each other how to deny his request. And so that kind of radicalized him mm -hmm. to just like, the system is broken. They're not telling us how things are being made. And they're like actively trying to subvert it, uh, which is all to say, like, I think when they got Doug Ford's mandate letters, because they were leaked at one point through this process, despite the legal back and forth, they didn't actually reveal that much surprising, but it was just frustrating that media had to go through this epic six-year-long legal battle to find out very little. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, that the, the moral of the story, I guess, if there is one, is that uh, fighting against transparency often costs more than than whatever you're being transparent about. And uh, it is on 
it, it's unfortunate that so many governments across Canada have decided that information uh, is is a kind of power that we need to try to to limit access to. And so, anytime there is a, a transparency in, a, initiative, it is it is turned into a, a public relations exercise, as you say, and 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 the quote unquote real information is still uh, channeled away. There's uh, there are long-term trends of, of people in, becoming increasingly skeptical of government. And, and these are the kinds of things that uh, continue to, to feed that, uh, f- uh, build those embers up in a, in a, um, a low intensity, but, but uh, seemingly inexorable way. If, if, if you assume that government is not going to tell you straight up what's going on, then you are going to be less, less trusting of government. And, and I think this, this is one of those issues that if we could try to all take a step back, we could say it, transparency is in everyone's interest. If you are taking a decision as a government, if it's a good one, defend it. And and if it's uh, if it's not a good one, then mm-hmm. maybe think about taking a different decision would be a, a one form of advice. And and rather than trying to take the decision that you know is a, uh, not going to be seen as in the best interest of the population, and then trying to, to, to uh, squirrel it away. I think allowing us to have bigger conversations and, and more difficult conversations, it feels like it's a Perhaps it is a skill that we are less able to do in a highly polarized uh, political environment, but I don't think uh, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors uh, in in this current trajectory. To bring this full circle, if the BC United are looking for an idea to really set them apart, especially from the NDP at this point, going hard on transparency and doing government differently could be a message. I don't know that it'll actually resonate with that many people, though it is an important one. Yeah, I think uh, doing things differently. The other, I mean, if we're, we're um, and I meant to mention this before, the, there are other ways that the BC NDP are, are, are vulnerable. They're, they're not doing uh, amazing work on transparency. They are also, uh, there's a great deal of uh, dissatisfaction with uh, on issues of affordability and in housing. And so even on these signature issues, the BC NDP is not above reproach. There's a great deal of dissatisfaction and frustration according to issue-based polling. It's just not at all turning into uh, a decline in support for for the government, which is to say British Columbians don't trust that the BC United is going to do a better job of any of those issues. And and so figuring out how to convince the the electorate if you're trying to if you are on on Team Falcon, if you're uh, BC United, you you have to figure out how are you going to convince British Columbians that you are going to do a better job on these issues uh, either than the Conservatives or or the BC NDP, because you are now in a two-front uh, war and there's uh, there's nothing for it but to fight it. Stuart, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Oh, always a pleasure on my end as well. Thank you for having me on. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.